0: And if you weren't with us last week when we started this series, we're going through this Old Testament book where the book itself is considered a sermon. Uh, The the term Ecclesiastes is this term that would have been then used in Greek talking about a gathering of people and the the writer is referring to himself as the preacher. And he has a message for the people. So this is a sermon looking at a a sermon, a message that he had. And the basic message that he announced in chapter 1 was... In verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, which you look at and say, wow, what kind of a message is this? What's, What's he getting at? And you realize, though, if you don't stop and close and move on to something else, you get all the way to the end, that's not where he ends. And so there's something about his announcement of the vanity of everything that he is trying to point us to a different reality and the frustration that we experience in the world. But this is written by someone who is a, a critic, someone whose eyes are wide open. There's, there's no, uh, um, no effort to try to sanitize the world as we experience it, but to acknowledge the frustrations, the pain, the futility that all of us experience, whether we're believers in God or not, that all of us share a common groaning and a, a dissatisfaction with things that we experience. So now we're in chapter two. In chapter one, he talked about wisdom and the futility of wisdom. And in chapter two, you'll see that he turns his attention also to pleasure. So this is on page 553, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. Ecclesiastes two. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil which I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness." The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, well, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise as the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will be long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what was done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after a wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I've toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And that concludes Our reading for today, most of us, when we think of the book of Ecclesiastes, if we know something about it, we we think of what's described here in chapter two, that this king who set himself up for pleasure and to try to satisfy himself by indulging in everything he desired found out that when he set himself on that course, at the end of it was not satisfaction, but just this endless desire for more, whether it was more power or more relationships or more houses or more things. And so when we think of the book, most of us think of it in in this vein, but he's careful if you were following along as we were reading, he's saying that he was doing that, though, still not without reference to God. He says, in all that time, he didn't let go of the wisdom that he had in the beginning. And so what we're, what we're saying is that this phrase, under the sun, is not a way of saying life without God. And if God's out of the picture, then there's nothing satisfying, there's no pleasure. But with God, all of a sudden, everything makes sense. As much as the phrase under the sun, meaning life as it really is, with or without God, with wisdom, with power, with authority, even as someone in charge, not just of the political life of Israel, but someone who would have been in charge of the spiritual life of Israel. And the frustration that he's experiencing is, coming, uh, is evident in all of those things. But then throughout, there's these nuggets of reflection that doesn't just wait until the very end and we already get some of them at the end of this chapter. We don't have to wait to the end of chapter 12 where that's not where he ends. But it is helpful that at the beginning, what he's making clear is, as we've said, his, his eyes are wide open. He's not ignoring any of the realities or the frustrations of life. And he's coming into, I've titled the message Vanity Fair, borrowing that not from the magazine Vanity Fair because the magazine got the title from the book Pilgrim's Progress. So if you've ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim's on a a journey to the celestial city and he has a companion with him called Faithful. And on their journey, it says they come to the town. It says the name of that town is Vanity. And at that town, there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair. It is kept all year long. At this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts. As harlots, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. And so they enter this town of vanity at which there's a fair that goes along all year long. And the thing that makes them stand out to the people is the fact that they don't seek pleasure and enjoyment in all of the things that everyone else in the town of vanity seeks pleasure in. And it offends the residents of that town so much that this is where they're imprisoned. And then both of them are sentenced in their imprisonment to death, but it's actually Faithful who ends up martyred. And we're not given the details immediately of how Christian is let go in it. But right after the martyrdom of the character Faithful, Christian gets to leave. And it says, Bunyan writing, I saw in my dream that Christian went not forth alone, for there was now one named Hopeful. Being so made by the beholding of Christian and Faithful in their words and behavior, in their sufferings at the fair who joined himself unto him and entering into a brotherly covenant, told him he would be his companion. Thus one died to bear testimony to the truth and another rises out of his ashes to be a companion with Christian in his pilgrimage. Thus Hopeful also told Christian that there were many more of the men in the fair that would take their time and follow after. And so for the rest of the book, his companion is named Hopeful. But I think it's insightful, it's an allegory written from a prison cell, someone who was also being persecuted for his faith, and saying the thing that converted hopeful in Vanity Fair was here were Christian and faithful who believed in what mattered most to the point that they were willing to suffer for it and experience loss for it. And the contrast of people who were indulging in everything that was supposed to make them happy, but never really satisfied. And they could look at that and say, how are we, all of the people in the town, indulging in everything our minds can think of, but never finding satisfaction? And here are two people that aren't partaking in any of this, but they know what they believe. They know what's most important to them and we can't actually manipulate them. We can't actually sell something to them. It's a town long before 21st century America where it says everything was for sale. In other words, nothing was considered sacred. Everything had a price on it. And when you live in an environment where everything is for sale and nothing is sacred, and then you encounter living people who say, there's no amount of money you can offer me to get me to do that. What? You can't manipulate me in the same ways you're used to manipulating other people. That stood out to this person that then becomes hopeful to say, because there's only despair in Vanity Fair in simply partaking of all the things that are for sale and ultimately finding no pleasure. But looking and seeing in someone else Enduring hope, strength, resilience, and a power of faith. And that's part of the enduring relevance of the book of Ecclesiastes, to say the challenge in pointing out the vanity that goes on and what happens when, why is it that we're never really satisfied even when we get the things we want or that we think we want? And to say, so do we think just getting more and getting more and getting more is ultimately going to bring us Happy. There, there's a, a new um, a website, it's, a, it's, it's written by Christians, but it's completely, um, every story is satire. It's called the Babylon Bee. And one of the articles was, uh, you know, parishioner believes that the new iPhone 7 will finally solve all of his deepest longings. <laughs> and then it goes on, this long story, basically making that point. That if your life wasn't com- completed by the first one or the second one or the third one, or the, it's not going to be completed by the seventh one. But we live in a society where many people are trying to sell us things and to sell them to us on the basis that if we simply get more, acquire more, can do more, then we'll know what real lasting and enduring happiness is. And the preacher has a message for all of the people to say, I've indulged in everything. And I found that there's not lasting happiness in self-indulgence. When I got everything I wanted, I realized that I wanted more than anything could ever satisfy. And so he describes this, the way of pleasure, as a dead-end way. And it's one thing to to think about it from the perspective of, of having genuine needs and hunger and thirst and saying, I'm just looking for food to survive. I'm looking for drink to just endure. But then to hear from someone who has all of that in abundance and saying you'd think your level of enjoyment would increasingly go up as you had more and more, but even anymore today when when just psychologists do happiness studies, they find that there is no correlation between the amount of things someone has and the level of reported happiness in their life and and they they can put it on a chart and and there's a certain income level where they say yes it is helpful to be out of the constant struggle of not being able to manage the bare necessities but when you get above the ability to take care of just most of your basic needs it's diminishing returns from there on out in terms of the joy that things bring you whether you're a believer or not a believer and so the preacher in his message is saying so don't Don't go down that dead-end street. Don't think that just a little bit more or just the newest or the latest is ultimately going to be the thing that brings you pleasure. And one of the realities that he's then confronted with is the reality of death. When he looks on it and he says, in all my wisdom as I've made my wise choices and I've acquired all these things, I also look at it and say, even if I do the best I can and I acquire as much as possible, I'm going to have to leave all of it behind. So in my life, I've been trying to be wise and not the fool, but one of the things I realize is when I'm gone, I only get to control so much who does what after I'm gone. And what if I do everything in wisdom only for someone to take control of it in the future who does something foolish with it? He just looks at that and it frustrates him. And he says... So why am I trying so hard to be wise (laughs) if that's part of the reality? And that's, again, something you can see, um, not even as a Christian, just when when they survey how most foundations are set up. And so someone with means creates a foundation, and money's invested in the market, and interest is grown on that money, and then the interest earned provides grants for a variety of organizations in the community. Consistently, if you study it, you'll see that it doesn't take more than two or three generations before the original intentions of why that money was allocated is no longer being used according to the wishes of the founder. Where some grandson who didn't really know his grandfather and doesn't care what his grandfather cared about all of a sudden gets to make decisions in ways that his grandfather never would have approved of. And it's a... It's understandable in some sense in that if you haven't walked down someone's road and haven't heard their journey and know what they've gone through, it's difficult to appreciate the things that they have been able to acquire the same way that they appreciated it because they knew the struggle. They knew the fight. They knew the work that was required in it. But here the preacher is saying, I'm looking forward and saying, someone might be able to do well with it, but I don't actually get to control that. And he's confronted by the reality of death. And there again, when we examine our own culture, to ask ourselves, are we a culture that prepares people for the reality of death? Or do we try as much as we can to ignore it? Uh, I won't say his name, but he's a quarterback in the NFL who, I think it was about two seasons ago, maybe three seasons ago, someone died within... The fan within the the network of the of the football team, a coach's son had passed away. And he went to the funeral. Most of the team went to the funeral. And he said, This is the first funeral I'm going to in my life. How are you 30-some years old (laughs) and you've never attended a funeral of someone? But more and more, if we simply approach life in the sense of what we want to do and what brings us the most joy? Yeah, most people don't go there necessarily looking for a good time. But if you commit to going to them and being there and trying to be one of the people that comforts someone in a time of loss, you have this amazing realization that when you're in those moments, you have the clearest thoughts you've ever had in your life. You have this way of just reprioritizing and saying, you know, a bunch of things I was really worried about, I don't feel as worried about anymore. Or, I shouldn't be spending so much effort on this kind of a thing. I should be spending more time on this because you're confronted with the reality of the limitations of your life and mine. And though it's something that happens to all of us, it is one of the things that is most uncomfortable for us to address, to think about. And to then ask the question, well, what does it mean to die well? How do I want to be remembered by other people when I die? But if we ask those kinds of questions, as opposed to ignoring the subject, rather than it undermining everything we're doing, it gives us an amazing appreciation for everything that is around us. Any of us, if we're given a sense of a limitation on not much more time, it's possible to despair, but it's also just as possible and often the case that for some people, they realize all the more how precious everything around them really is. How wonderful and amazing the simplest of things are. And so here, the preacher is confronted by this reality of death and then the uncertainty of the future. That whatever we do in our own limited time frame, whatever work we do, he talks about the king who's gonna come after him and say, what's the king gonna be able to do who comes after one king? Well, not a whole lot because so much of what he does is going to be affected by the policies and the things that were implemented by the king before. That's one of the frustrating experiences most Americans experience in the election. We think that we vote for an individual candidate and that individual candidate would change a lot of things. But in the actual percentages, the amount of people that get voted in and voted out anymore are a fairly small percentage of the overall government. So that there's a number of employees at the State Department who aren't going anywhere before or after election. There are a number of people in the Department of Education who aren't going anywhere. Whoever comes in still has to deal with so many of the same people and so many of the already embedded disagreements and conflicts that exist that you interview a president, any president, when they go into office and then when they leave office and almost all of them will have a much more humble tone at the end than they did at the beginning. And they'll say it was a lot harder to get the things done than I thought they'd be. Because there's just the nature of campaigning where you get to say things and don't have to do anything, right? And so you can just keep saying things. And wow, I can say a fourth thing and a fifth thing. Yeah, that sounds like you're gonna do a lot. And then at the end to say, man, all those things I was talking about, I didn't realize how many people are just involved in that. And how many people I have to try to persuade to do what i want to do or to allow the funding to be released to do this or that thing and he acknowledges that there's this uncertainty in the future so much of what we deal with was because of decisions made a generation ago two generations ago three generations ago none of us escape that entirely and so when we look forward into the future and we have our questions about our kids and grandkids and the community and the places that we love, we can sit around and we can talk about our concerns and our thoughts, but none of us know we all stand before the future humble with desires, with wishes, with dreams, but with a level of uncertainty as to what's going to happen. So there again you say, man, what so <laughs> This preacher's like really, he's, he's, he's just really down. He must have had a really bad night of sleep last night. But in this chapter, that's not where he ends. He ends with this crazy idea. In all of that reflection, the simplicity of pleasing God. It says verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And then later, he's given to the one who pleases God. So he starts off by saying he's pursued this way of self-indulgence and trying to please himself and found that to be a dead-end street. He doesn't know what's gonna happen with all of the work he's investing his time in, The certain is unfuture to him, but this is certain. When our mind is fixed on pleasing the God who made us, there's a million ways we can do it right now in the moment to eat and drink to the pleasure and enjoyment of God. So, like this is gathered time of worship to sing his praise. But if you also go from this place and go to Gasoline Alley for the brunch, and you eat the thickest French toast you've ever eaten, and you bless God that someone had the idea that much food would be even better if it was fried, (laughs) and you consume it and bless God for it. He said, yeah, enjoy it. As Paul would say, whatever you do, if you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. You don't know what's going to happen 30 years from now. And no one can tell you what's going to happen 30 years from now. But if it's a 75-degree day and sunny and light wind, you should hear God screaming at you, go outside and enjoy it. Like pull your kids out of school for a day and do something fun. What, am I allowed to do that? Yeah, don't, don't freak out about the potential future ramifications of that. How many days like that do you get? Enjoy it. Do something that is a way in which you're expressing your thanks for God by appreciating what it is he's given you. If a friend's in town and they're almost never in town, is it okay to stay up till 2 a.m. talking? about? Yes, do it. You don't know when you're gonna see that friend again. No one can guarantee you almost anything about the future. So don't let that freak you out. Enjoy the small things. Enjoy the moments that God has given you and if you get a late night conversation with someone that when you talk to you say we're kindred spirits we're together i mean this the beginning of this week multiple times i thought i should call dennis i want to see how dennis is doing i should call him and i didn't call him and i didn't call him until then i got an email that said he passed away now i can look back and say given the circumstance i probably would have left a voicemail that i never would have heard from but that's no excuse i should have called him because I don't know how much more time I have or anyone has. But when we open our eyes, eyes wide open to all the frustrations and the realities that experience, we can also see a million blessings that are right in front of us. And God's saying, don't miss what is right before your face, what you can enjoy right now, because you're spending so much time anxious over the uncertainty of the future or the reality of death. Let all of those things be then the motivation for you and for me to thank God and to bless him for what we have. I was telling someone before service, you know, these kind of moments, you don't think about them if you've moved on from them or if something bad didn't happen, but in the news recently of a couple of young teenagers in our community who lost their life in car accidents or in different circumstances... I forget all the time that I was once driving a Suburban. I was at an event in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was a baptism that was going on, and a number of us young people were going somewhere. And for some reason, the mom, who probably also thought I was older than I was, uh, I was only 17, and she said, you get the key. You're the driver tonight. And so I'm driving a Suburban. I've never driven a Suburban before. And I, I don't know that we are paying the closest attention to the seatbelt limit in, in the car. So there's at least nine people in the car, maybe more. As we're driving, the, um, that's my son. Uh, as we're driving, eventually we come up on a, on a lane of construction that is basically making you do a snake. Never driven a vehicle this big. There's a lot of people in it. So I start going and I don't slow down enough. So I make the first right, and then the left, and then I realize I've lost complete control of the vehicle. Let go of the steering wheel, and saw it go like this, and then back like this. And only my friend Jeremiah, sitting next to me, saw what I saw, which was the complete lack of control. Everyone else, the moon, right in the back. And I just let go and was putting my foot on the brake, and we came down to a total stop and we didn't flip. But I just look back on that and I say, Yeah, I had nothing to do with the ultimate provision or safety of everyone in that vehicle. I, I'm not guaranteed another single moment. And as, as pure as some experiences might seem or think, no, none of us have a certainty about what awaits us in the future. But we have this amazing gift called life as long as we have it. And it really was given to us to enjoy, to be thankful for, and to eat and to drink and do everything to the glory of God. That's what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying to you and me. Let God worry about the future. He's the only one who knows what 30 years from now is. And He's the one who can best handle it anyway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for how great you are. That when we think about ourselves and the, just the mystery of our hearts and how we can try and try and try, and there's, there's just a, a reality of frustration and a dead-end road to our attempts at self-indulgence. And that in that, sometimes we can miss the very real opportunity to enjoy the things that you have given us. That if our focus is redirected towards pleasing you, you have told us that we can love our neighbors. You've told us to forgive our enemies. You told us to eat and to drink and to enjoy the fruit of our labor in whatever ways we can in thankfulness. None of us ultimately know the whys and the wherefores of how lives unfold. But we pray that you would give us the attitude and the heart, the resilience of faith that does not end in despair but ends in hope and that when we're surrounded by an area that everything seems for sale and nothing is held sacred, that you would help our own lives to be a testimony of resilience and enduring joy, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, with our eyes wide open to the reality of death, the uncertainty of the future, but an enduring confidence that you are God and we are not. And we trust you to do what only you can do and what you can do so much better than we can. And so we, we do, we, we submit our lives to you and we thank you for them in your son's name, amen.